time I hear that song, I think about the story of the martyrs during the Reformation, whenever the Catholic Church would persecute. Well, open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 10. I did not plan this, but the Lord did, that today, the day in which we're celebrating tonight, our kid uh, men... Uh, uh, Praise Factory Awards, uh, we are on the, the passage about the children of the kingdom, the scene where Jesus blesses little children that are bought, brought to him. And we come upon this scene where you remember the last scene we saw was uh, Jesus teaching about, about marriage and then divorce. And so we did a long series on that to try to understand all that the Bible teaches about uh, the topic, and we probably still don't understand all the Bible teaches about the topic, but at least we uh, got a good start. We come to this scene where Jesus is continuing to reorient the, the, the disciples' understanding on everyday topics. Mark chapter 10 deals with, with the sanctity of marriage. It deals with how you view children, their value. It deals with, uh, with wealth and possessions. And uh, in chapter 11, we're almost to Jerusalem. Jesus taught the disciples about how a Christian should view marriage. And now he's going to use children to correct the disciples' view about, about human value. What makes someone worthy? What makes someone worthy to enter into the kingdom? What makes someone worthy in order to be used by God, loved by God, blessed by God? And in both cases, Jesus uses everyday scenarios and he ties them to the kingdom. And a believer is in the world, but not of the world. We, we're not these spiritual schizophrenics where we, we live these two lives. But the Bible tells us we're here, and we have to function in the world around us, but we have eyes that, that looks, to, uh, looks to a kingdom. And so we view things differently. We view things rightly because the Bible rightly interprets reality. And so marriage is not just an earthly endeavor, the way that the world views it. It's not just a contractual relationship. It's not just limited to our use and time here on the earth. We're we're bound spiritually, the Bible says. We're made one by God. Therefore, there's the sanctity of marriage. What what makes it, what gives it sanctity is is the kingdom aspect, the eternal aspect. It's not just two human beings coming together, making some type of agreement. Now he shows that children are not to be disregarded because of their status in the world or because they can't do good works. They are, in fact, an illustration of how everyone enters the kingdom. And I don't think it's any mistake that Mark puts these two scenes together, the blessing of children following the sanctity of marriage. It's very appropriate, isn't it? What's the fruit of a of a of a God honoring marriage, it's 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 children that that are being brought to the Lord Jesus Christ. But the focus of this story is actually the disciples' attitude, and then Jesus' rebuke of their attitude. The disciples still have the infection of the world. They still have the infection of apostate Judaism. They still are viewing things through that grid system or that lens that they had before they began to follow Christ. And so Jesus is faithfully taking them through a three-year journey. They're in, the, they're in an intensive right now, this one-year intensive, where Jesus is teaching them specifically 
And He's reorienting their thinking. He's, they're not seeing things the way that Jesus sees. And so the Lord uses the very children they reject as an illustration of how they're supposed to see. An illustration of discipleship. Now, this, this is happening to you and to me all of the time. Okay, when you came to Christ, if you're a Christian here this morning, however it happened in your bedroom, up front, in a prayer room, whenever you were young or whenever you were old, when you bowed the knee and you said whatever you said to God, God had done the work in your heart, you called out to Him, you know, fireworks didn't go off, pixie dust, you know, Jesus dust didn't fall from the sky, your mind uh, was, was enlightened, now you have the ability to understand spiritual truth, but you still have all the junk that was there before. I lived 24 years apart from Christ. And so the penalty of your sin was completely washed away because Jesus paid it all, right? That's what we sing. Praise God. But then the process of renewing your mind, of thinking rightly, the fall and our sin warps us. We can't think right. So the Bible helps us to think right, and that happens over a period of time. And Jesus is taking the disciples through that, and He's taking you and me through that all of the time. He's doing that this morning. God is renewing our minds. And we're supposed to be part of that process, right? And what Romans 12 says, renew your minds. And that's what being a follower of Christ means. It means that you live your life in light of His teaching. You, you don't have that naturally. If you put no Bible in your mind, if you don't read, if you don't sit under the proclamation of the Word in preaching, if you don't get around other Christians... Watch what happens, not only to your thinking, but watch what happens comes out of your heart. It doesn't matter if you've been to church for 50 years. You stop and you watch what happens. Why? Because your heart is still an idol factory, and it constantly needs to be renewed. In fact, that's why you're here this morning, I hope. That's why I'm preaching this morning, so we can think like Him, so we can be reoriented. And following Christ means that you reorient your life based upon the words of the Bible. What he says, we do. What he thinks, we think. It's not some mystical experiential walk where you're listening for voices or promptings, feeling your way, trying to find the will of God. Discipleship is follow me, follow what I say. Be a disciple, learn my teaching, and then apply that to your life. And that's exactly what he's doing here with the disciples. He's taking them on a journey, just like us, ripping up the worldly grid system and slowly, progressively taking out the old and laying down the new. And today, Jesus does that with their view of children. And he teaches them a lesson on receiving salvation. I think arguably, this is no biblical authority to this, personal opinion, but I think this is one of the best illustrations of saving grace in all of the Bible. Now, you might say, well, wait a minute, what about the prodigal son? Well, that's an amazing portrait of grace, right? Here we reject him, we leave him, we go our own way, we fill our bellies on the husks of the world, and then we realize how stupid we really were, and we want to come back and be a slave, and God runs and meets us, embraces us, and cleanses us. What an amazing picture of of, of grace. But here is another illustration 
of saving grace in the Bible. It comes from a different angle. Here are babies that are brought to Jesus, and he blesses them and says they're part of the, of the kingdom. So not only is this an illustration of grace, but it also, I believe, answers the question about what happens to children or babies whenever they die. Um, do babies go to heaven whenever they die? Well, you say you, you better believe they do. Absolutely. That would be absolutely unfair if they didn't go to heaven. Well, you better be careful. You better have a Bible passage to go along with that. And here is a passage where God talks about what happens to babies and how they relate to the kingdom. Maybe more importantly than what happens when uh, to babies when they die is, is what happens, what will happen to you whenever you die. Because this passage also teaches that if you want to enter the kingdom, you're going to come the same way that Jesus describes in this, in this passage. We read it this morning, or Clay did for us, verses 13 through 16, just a few verses. This story is also taught in Matthew 19 and in Luke 18. And all of them show Jesus making a declaration about children and using them as an illustration for salvation. So let me give you an outline. This is about children of the kingdom, physical and spiritual. And I would just say this is one of the best illustrations of salvation by grace in the New Testament. Verse 13, Jesus, through his rebuke of the disciples, gives a rejection of salvation by works. And I'll show you in just a minute. Then he makes a declaration about children by Christ. Permit the children to come to me, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He makes a declaration about children. And then he gives an illustration about salvation by, by grace. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it. I mean, this almost echoes John chapter 3. You must be born again or you'll not enter the kingdom of God. And then finally, there's a reinforcement of belonging by this physical blessing. He took them in his arms and he blessed them, laid his hands on them. One point for each verse, because each verse teaches us something new. Jesus rejects the attitude of the disciples in verse 13. And what's hiding beneath that attitude is the belief that righteousness comes by works. Let's look at this first one. A rejection of salvation by works. Look at verse 13, if you would. And they were bringing the children to him so that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked them. Now you think, at least I do, what kind of hard-hearted knuckleheads would do something like that? Who would keep babies, little children, from coming to the, to the Son of God? But that's exactly what happens in this verse, and Jesus shows us what is beneath the surface, why they did that. Now, just to give you some background, Jesus has passed into the region of Judea, and he's engaging in ministry, just like he did in Galilee. Galilee's over. We're in Judea, Perea right now. He's teaching the disciples. That's his primary focus, but there's ministry happening. 
There was a crowd whenever Jesus teaches about marriage and divorce. The Pharisees were there. And now here is a group of people, parents, bringing their children to Jesus. And he wants, they, they want Jesus to, to touch them, meaning a blessing. And the disciples were stepping between them and, and turning them away. I mean, they're acting like concert security. You know, nope, nope, you, no, you cannot come any closer. So you've got this scene here where the parents are carrying these very small children, babies, in fact, to Jesus, asking him to touch them, and they can't reach, before they can reach Jesus, the disciples will reprimand them. And these are very small children. Now, the word that's used here in verse 13 for children is just a general term for for child. Mark chapter 5 uses this word for a 12-year-old. Genesis 17 in the Septuagint uses it for an 8-day-old. But Luke 18, the parallel passage, tells us specifically who these children are, how old they are, or at least a general range. Luke uses the word abrephe, meaning a a little baby, a nursing child. So you remember Jesus earlier puts a child in the midst of the disciples and teaches them a lesson about about humility. So that child obviously can walk. Well, here you you have another scene of children, and these are are infants. These are small babies. These are nursing babies. They probably nurse them longer then than, than we do today, but they're brought to, to Jesus, and Luke uses a specific word. So what, what's going on here? Why would these parents bring these, these infants to Jesus to begin with? Well, it, it was custom in their day, and, and they're looking for this, for this blessing. I mean, the parents, I mean, if, I mean, think about it. If you were anywhere close to Jesus Christ, even if you weren't a believer, and you heard about his power, you saw his compassion and his love, you hear about him preaching the kingdom, wouldn't you want him to touch your baby too? I would. (laughs) And here the parents who care about these children are following a practice from the Old Testament, and they're also following a tradition of the day. The the practice of blessing is, is, is found in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, fathers primarily blessed their, their children. You know, Noah blessed Shem and Japheth. Jacob blessed his sons. There's that famous story in the Bible where somebody gives their blessing, their birthright away for a bowl of, of stew. You saw how, how important it was at that point. It was typically a fatherly blessing pronounced over the heads of the children. But by the time you get to Jesus' day, the Jews has incorporated it into their, into their system of works. The Talmud said it was customary for parents to bring their children to be blessed by the elders of the synagogue. It was a special day that was set aside for this. It was the day right before Yom Kippur, right before the Day of Atonement. That was the day set aside that you brought your child to the synagogue and the elders would have a blessing ceremony. And they would... They would bring their children that day and they would pray that the atonement that's going to happen the next day would be applied to their children. So you have the precedence in the Old Testament and then you have this tradition that's, that's, that's going on. And, and the parents in hopes that they would become righteous by keeping the law would pray and the Jewish leaders use, uh, use their, you know, this, this same model. In fact, they would pray and they would instruct the parents to pray 
these three things. When you brought your child to be blessed, you would pray that the child would become famous in the law. That the child would be faithful in marriage. And that the child would be abundant in good works. Famous in the law, faithful in marriage, and abundant in good works. And you say, well, that doesn't sound like a, like a bad prayer. It's not a bad prayer if you already have salvation. If salvation has already happened. But it's not a very good one if you think that's going to bring about salvation, right? And so, in this ceremony, they would lay their hands on the heads of the child... And then they would bless him and they would pray for the child. So you have the parents who have this precedence in the Old Testament and you have this this happening in their local synagogues and then the Son of God, there's a prophet or a Messiah, whatever they believed he was, they're bringing their their children and say, "Let, let, let him do it. And so the parents are going to get a lesson about how salvation really comes and the disciples need it as well. The in the disciples' mind, whenever they're rebuking them, the parents were bringing children, babies nonetheless, the lowest of the low in society, and they're doing this to Jesus, and they're indignant. And it says that they rebuked the parents in verse four or verse thirteen. It's a very strong word, epitomao. It's, it's, a, it's intensified with a preposition. It means to censure them. It means to reprimand them. It's, it's not just a, no, no, don't bother him right now. I mean, it's a, in your face, get out of here. What are you doing? You have no business doing this. I mean, it's, it's nasty. And the disciples take it upon themselves to forbid these, these parents and these children, and they actually rebuke the fathers, the the storyline has the idea that both mother and father are bringing the child and they rebuke the fathers, which would be fitting. What are you doing? Why are you letting your wife do this? Why, why are you doing this? Get this baby away from here. And so not, not only is there rudeness there, but, but it's evident that the disciples didn't learn their lesson back from Mark chapter 9. You probably aren't thinking about this. But when Jesus says in verse 14, permit the children to come to me and do not hinder them, forbid them not, it's the same words that he uses back in Mark chapter 9. Do you remember when they came off of the Mount of Transfiguration? There were three that went up on the mount. There were nine that stayed back. And they couldn't cast out the demon. So they get a lesson on humility. And that whole scene ends with John telling Jesus that they, they forbade a man, they forbade a man who was casting out demons in his name. And Jesus says, forbid him not. I mean, he's doing it in my name. Who's not for us, or who's not against us is, is for us. It's the same word. There they were forbidding ministry of others because of the status of the worker. John says, this man's not with us, and so I'm forbidding him. The status of the worker. And now they're forbidding ministry again because of the status of the recipient. These are babies. These are infants. They're not, they're not great in the law. They can't even keep the law. What, what are you doing? Did you know that God uses people in ministry that you may not think is worthy? Did you know that God receives people into the kingdom that you may not think 
they're worthy to come into the kingdom? You better believe he does. You better be happy that God uses people that might not seem worthy or you wouldn't be used at all. And you ought to be happy that God receives people that the world doesn't think is worthy or you wouldn't get in the kingdom either. And the disciples have a problem here. They're applying this, this perspective both to those who are serving Christ and those who are coming to Christ. They're acting like exalted gatekeepers. And now they're the ones that receive the rebuke. Look at verse 14. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come unto me and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. He doesn't rebuke the parents. The parents weren't wrong. Only the disciples are rebuked. And you can hear the Lord's irritation in His rebuke. It's positive and negative. Let the children approach me. There's the positive. The negative. Don't prevent them. And His response both times to the disciples, whenever they were talking about chapter 9 about the servants or talking about the ones who are now who are approaching, is do not forbid them. Let the children approach me. Let the children come to me. Do not permit them. Did you know that there is a similar attitude of the disciples in 2018 in the evangelical church or in the modern church? The attitude is that children's ministry or kids' ministry or children's Sunday school is this stuff really, really down here? I mean, that's for the people that don't have any place else to serve, right? And they have to come and beg us to serve in children's ministry. We don't have enough children's ministry workers. We need children's ministry workers. Or we view children's ministry as a babysitting service. Well, we're just over there. We're going to let them watch VeggieTales videos or whatever it is, God forbid. And the children's ministry is one of the most important ministries in the church. It's not babysitting. Because Jesus says that children matter to Him. And in fact, He says, let them come to Me. Encourage them to come to Me. Open the gates so that they might come to Me. And do not hinder them from coming to Me. So if you're looking for a place to serve, Matt didn't pay me to say this, you ought to consider kid ministry. Luke says that after Jesus rebukes the parents, or after Jesus rebukes the disciples, he calls the parents. So you have this scene of the parents bringing the children, the disciples stepping between Jesus and the, and the parent and the child, and they push them away, they, they sternly rebuke them. Jesus sees what's happening, he rebukes the disciples, and then Luke says he calls to the parents. Oh, come. They're starting to turn away. And he called for them to come to, to bring their, their babies to him. Now, why did the disciples do that? Well, I think the simple answer is they're, not th- they're thinking in human terms, not kingdom ones. They had picked up the perspective of the works-based system of their culture. And Jesus completely rejects that here. Children were not valued. They had no place in society. They're not precious like they are today. When we think of a baby, we think, oh, a baby is so cute. It wasn't that same way in that society. There was no sanctity of marriage. There was no sanctity of human life either. 
the Romans had a common practice of, of child exposure. If a baby was born and it didn't have the right sex or there was a problem with it, it was exposed to the elements and it died. That was commonplace in Jesus' day, in the Romans. The Jews didn't express the same kind of value towards children that Jesus did, and they spiritualized it. In Judaism, male children could not lead a holy life and weren't considered registering on the scale until they they were invested with the law, and that happened to the on their 13th year when they were bar mitzvahed. And so in apostate Judaism, their value was equated with the ability to receive the law because in that system you earned your way. You earned it by good works, and children couldn't do that. You, they didn't know the difference between good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness, and therefore they're not even considered part of the discussions about the children of God. And so they're not as valuable as an adult. And Jesus just absolutely trumps all over that with this passage. In fact, what he says next is absolutely shocking to everyone who who heard it. He makes a declaration about children. Permit the children to come to me and don't hinder them. That's his rebuke. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to children. And not just children that, that come childlike, but, but babies, infants. They have a rightful share in the kingdom. And so do others like him, like them, is what he's going to say next. Now, don't miss the significance of the end of verse 14 and the beginning of verse 15. Look at the end of verse 14. Look at it again. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Who are these? It's the children, really small children, nursing infants, nursing children that are being brought to Jesus. And look at verse 15. He's going to go specific, and then he's going to give a bigger general principle. Truly I say to you in verse 15, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. So you have a specific statement about children, and then that's the basis for this general statement that comes next. The specific has to do with children getting into the kingdom, and the general has to do with how others like them, spiritual children, if you will, how they get into the kingdom. And Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. These is... Nursing infants that are being brought to Jesus. Could be three to four years old. The cutoff age is not important. What is important is the classification and how they come. They're unable to come on their own. They're unable to earn righteousness. Someone is carrying them to Jesus. They don't walk there by their own volition. And they don't have nothing in themselves to earn righteousness. And the Lord blesses these little children and says the kingdom of God belongs to, to these. Did you know that Jesus never pronounced a blessing on anyone other than a person who belonged to the kingdom of God? God doesn't bless those who are cursed. And so this is a very unique situation. Jesus says this group, these children who fall into this category, belong to the kingdom. Now, just as a side note, if there was ever a passage in the Bible where Jesus could have just blown out the doctrine of infant baptism, this would have been it, wouldn't it? 
I mean, if there was ever a place where Jesus would teach infant baptism, infant baptism, it would be here. I mean, the perfect place to teach the, the covenant, covenantal family. It would be a perfect place for Jesus to say to the disciples and the parents that the kingdom of God belongs to such as those who are baptized. And here I've got some water right here, and I'll sprinkle them, and then you can go your way, and then you can confirm them later in life. But Jesus says, says none of that. He gives no indication of the spiritual condition of the parents that are, that are bringing these children. He gives no indication of the possibility of their faith, or the faith of the parents for that matter. Because they're non-issues. A baby can have no faith. A baby is, is neither a conscious non-believer or a conscious believer. They're a baby. They're neither a compliant or anything else. He says babies in general are part of the kingdom. No qualifiers, no caveats. Anyone in here had a baby die in the womb? We have two of them. You ever had a miscarriage or maybe even an abortion? Has, a, has anyone had a child die before they became willfully rejecting of Christ? Jesus here says that baby belongs to the kingdom of God. It's beautiful. You say, how is that possible? I mean, there's a cross and there's an atonement and then there's this, you know, other stuff you have to do. How can that be possible? Aren't babies sinful? Aren't they sinners? Well, if you've ever been around one, you know the answer to that, right? The Bible echoes what you experience whenever you're around the child. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and sin. My mother conceived me. Literally, I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Ecclesiastes 7, surely there is not a righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. So much for you're born as a blank slate, neutral, so much for Pelagianism. Job 15.14, what is man that he can be pure? Or he who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? Well, there is none. Babies are not morally neutral. What's the evidence of that? Well, the earthly evidence is they die. That's how you know that they're, they're not morally neutral. The evidence of the fall and the evidence of sin is death. The death principle is already in them. Some die in the womb, some die after birth, and in both cases it's prior to their ability to make choices. And Jesus says, yet they belong to the kingdom. He doesn't say elect babies are in the kingdom and non-elect babies are not. All babies. How? Well, the same way that you and I get there. Sovereign grace, which is the picture of the tear. They're carried to Christ, and he enfolds them into the kingdom, not on the basis of who they are, not on the basis of their works, but based on his declaration. They're born sinner, they're born sinners. They must be included in the atonement in some way. The Bible doesn't specifically tell us when or how. And they must be regenerated at, at some point. But this passage says all babies, assumedly before they reach the ability to believe or not, are under special divine care. And they have a place of care in the kingdom if they die. 
Does God regenerate them at death? Seems that way. But I know one thing, if they get to heaven, they're going to be regenerated and their sins were paid for on the cross. There's another passage in 2 Samuel chapter 12 that people typically go to that I also believe that indicates children are part of the, of the kingdom. I want you to turn back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. This is the, the verse about the child of David and Bathsheba, the child that comes from adultery. And because of that adultery and murder and lying and all the other wickedness that's there, the, the, the child is under the judgment of God. It's struck. Second Samuel chapter 12, you would it. Verse 15, so Nathan went to his house, and then the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David, so that he was very sick. And David, therefore, inquired of God for the child. And David fasted, and he went, and he lay all night on the ground. David prays, and he fasts, and... He does this for a very long period of time. The child is dying due to God's judgment, and David prays that the child would live, and then watch what happens whenever he learns that the child dies. Verse 18, It happened on the seventh day that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. And they said, Behold... While the child was still alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to our voice. How then can we tell him that the child is dead, since he might do harm to himself? But when David saw his servants whispering together, David perceived that the child was dead. And so David said to his servants, Is the child dead? Now, this is a baby. And they said, He is dead. And verse 20, David arose from the ground and washed, anointed himself, and changed his clothes and came into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he came to his own house, and when he, he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. And this is perplexing to the servants, but it wasn't perplexing to David. Verse 21. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? While the child was alive, you, you fasted and wept, but when the child was died, you, you, you arose and ate food. And look at David's response. While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept and said, Who knows, the Lord may be gracious to me that the child may live. But now he has died, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? Now, is David saying there, is is he just being fatalistic? Is he just saying, well, there's no use to pray and fast now, the baby's dead. And so I just, you know, what will be, will be. Is Is that what David's saying? I don't think it is. Listen to what he says at the end. Can I bring him back? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Now, the argument here that this in the Hebrew is Sheol or the grave. David's saying, I'm going to the grave. The child went to the grave, and I'm going to go to the same place. That's true. That's what the Hebrew says. But I really like what MacArthur said. Um, I don't think that David... 
that, that any parent finds too much comfort and is so comforted that they worship and they eat because they're going to be buried in the same cemetery as their child. Oh, it's wonderful. I have no problems now that my baby's dead because I'm going to be buried in the same cemetery with the child. That, that's not too encouraging, is it? He's comforted because he believes that he'll see the child again. Look at 2 Samuel 19. I want you to look at David's different response. You probably know that passage. But look at 2 Samuel 18, I'm sorry, verse 33. At David's response to his other son when Absalom dies, an unbelieving son. David is grief-stricken. He paces and he waits until news comes. In verse 31, Behold, the Cushite arrived, and the Cushite said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all of those who rose up against you. That's good news on the battlefield, king. And the king said to the Cushite, Is it well with, with the young man Absalom? I don't care who won the battle. I want to know how my boy is. And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord, the king, all who rose up against you at evil, be as this young man. He answers them, he's dead. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and he wept. And thus, as he walked, as he paced, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you, O Absalom, my son, my son. Now, is Absalom alive or dead? He's dead. So why does David respond that way with the baby? As soon as he finds out it dies, he rises, he washes himself, he worships the Lord, he sets a meal and he eats. And now when his adult son, who is an unbeliever, is dead, he grieves this way. Because in this moment, David realizes that he'll never see Absalom again. Absalom is outside of the kingdom. And I believe the baby, David believes, is inside of the kingdom. Turn back to Mark, and we'll finish this up. So what is it about these children that make them part of the kingdom? Well, it's not the parents, it's not their faith, it's not some covenant, it's not infant baptism. It's not because of what God foresees that will happen with them someday, because we're not told anything about the condition of the parents. But it says, For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. What makes them worthy of the kingdom? Well, now you go from the specific to the general. And he uses the children specifically to teach how anyone finds a place in the kingdom. There's an illustration Salvation by grace. Verse 15. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Now think about this. Because your first inclination will be like a child. Well, uh, you know, um, innocent, uh, without, uh, without pretense, really humble, you know, open-handed. But these are nursing infants. It's a heavy statement. Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. 
it's italics in the New American Standard because it's trying to emphasize what the original language says. It's, it says gospel ramifications. It's about getting in the kingdom. And Jesus' point is about who receives the kingdom, how they're going to get in. So how do these children get in the kingdom? Is it by their merits? No, they have none. You're not going to heaven by your merits. God's not going to weigh out your good works and your bad works whenever you get there. Is it because they have no sin? No, they're born in sin. It's not a blank slate. Is it by their works? No, they have no capacity to do any good works. Is it because they made a choice? No, because somebody brought them to Jesus. They don't have any ability to make a choice. They're a baby. It's received by God's divine grace. And they receive it because Jesus gives it to them. And our Lord says, No one other than the self-confessedly weak and helpless and unworthy and dependent, humble, with nothing to commend yourself, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Let me ask you, whenever you came to Christ, if you know the Lord, did you just wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I'm just going to be smarter than the average bear today. I'm just going to reject hell, and I'm just going to run into heaven. When that first person witnessed to you and shared Christ with you, did you say, oh, wow, where's this been all of my life? I can't wait to throw away all my sins and enter into the kingdom of God. Wasn't my experience. It's not an experience that you see in the Bible. Now there might have been some heart work that was done where God broke you, where you had no place else to look but up when before that person came to you. But that's where you have to get. Receiving the kingdom as a little child means openly, confidently receiving what is given. It's helpless, small, without claim or merit. I think this is one of the best illustrations in the Gospels of salvation by grace because babies are enfolded in the kingdom and they have done absolutely nothing to earn it and they've had done they've done absolutely nothing to come to it. And it's an illustration of all those who are part of the kingdom because unless you come as a child, you'll not enter. Look at how Jesus puts an exclamation point, an exclamation point on this whole scene to make sure that everybody gets it. There's a reinforcement. So after the parents are turning away and he says, No, don't come back, he rebukes the disciples. He says, These children are part of the kingdom. And you or anybody else, disciples, that are coming into the kingdom, you're going to come the same way. And then he took them in his arms. There's another example or illustration that these are babies. These are young. He puts them in his arms and he begins blessing them, laying his hands on them. Which again, that would have been very different from the day. Jesus goes beyond expectations of even letting them come in. He puts his arms around them. He blesses them. And the word that Mark uses here is in the intensive form. It's not found anywhere else in the New Testament. So if there's something not found anywhere else in the New Testament, it, 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 that says pay attention. He's putting his hands on them. 
It's a participial phrase that describes the manner in which the blessing was administered. He's blessing them, and he's doing as he's doing, he's putting his hands on them. So how does Jesus treat servants that serve him that other people think are unworthy? He says, if you're doing it in my name and you're not against me, continue to serve me all you want. How does he respond to those who someone else thinks they're not worthy to come into the kingdom? He embraces them. And blesses them. So, how does Jesus treat those who have nothing to offer? He uh, doesn't treat them like a leper. He says they belong. He embraces them extravagantly, and they're his precious children. He takes them in his arms, he lays his hand on them. And if you want to draw this illustration in verse 16 to how he's going to receive someone who comes into the kingdom who, who enters into heaven, I, I don't think that's too much of a stretch. When you get to heaven and you see your Savior, how's he going to respond to you? Well, hang out over there. i got more important stuff to do. Let the angels worship me. You ought to just be glad you're here. You don't deserve it anyway. Is that how God's going to treat you whenever you get in the kingdom? I know what I'm going to be doing when I get in the kingdom. We used to sing a song. If I leave this world of sorrow sometime before you do, just look for me in heaven and we'll talk the ages through. And it goes on. It says, don't look beneath the gates of pearl. Don't look on the streets of gold, don't look by the walls of jasper, nor among the many sights untold, for I've been longing and I've been waiting for the precious Holy One to see. There I'll be through the countless ages. Look for me at Jesus' feet. That's where I want to be. When I get in and I see Him, I want to fall on my face and give Him thanks for His grace. But what will He do when He sees me or sees you? And here's a wonderful insight. He's going to treat you like his precious possession. He's going to treat you like family. The very king of heaven will take you into his presence and he'll bless you. And he'll say you belong because I've folded you into the kingdom. I've died and shed my blood for your sins. And there's none who can bring a charge against you if I have forgiven you. And that's exactly how we're to view other people.